It's a common scene in New York City. People hurrying down the sidewalk, many staring at their smartphones. But while they're looking down, architect Robert Arthur King is looking up. My main hobby is photography, photographing actually building details. King specifically likes to capture decorative stone carvings on the facades of buildings. Faces, animal figures, flowers, these are sculptures mostly created by anonymous artisans in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. King's photographs of these sculptures are featured in three books, Faces in Stone, Animals in Stone, and his latest, Figures in Stone. I'm George Bolarki, and this is Cityscape. I recently took a walk with King on Manhattan's Upper West Side. He had his camera in hand, and it didn't take him long to spot stone faces worthy of his lens's attention. Let's get that, the man and that woman. The man there and the woman. And the stained glass. <laughs> oh, she has this nice smile. What inspired this hobby of yours? I took a class in women in photography, and one of the assignments was to photograph women. And being not that, being a bit shy, uh, I figured and work in my in my profession. I work on historic buildings, and there were women on the buildings, and I knew where they were. I sometimes knew their name. They didn't need to get a release, and I thought that was the best way to photograph women. So I started doing that. That was about 1996-97, and uh, I got an A in the class. And then I continued to photograph women. Then I photographed men and then I did animals and flowers and I covered most of New York Manhattan and initially and um, I had an exhibition at my school on Harlem and really showing that many neighborhoods which people think are not very attractive there's a lot of beauty in the neighborhoods and then I started doing doing a project in Brooklyn so I started photographing areas in Brooklyn and then I went to Queens and Staten Island and I got all five boroughs which I thought was quite for myself and just just for my own record. And then I went to Philadelphia and I started photographing Philadelphia. I went to Chicago, Seattle, and then I got a little carried away. Then I went to uh, Barcelona, Madrid, Stockholm, London, and it just I got carried away with it. And making people to be aware that there's beauty all over and, and to look up. And these artisans really get ignored. And look at the woman over there in the corner. Yeah, she's looking right at us, that figure in stone. She wants our picture, to take her picture. I didn't notice her before. I missed her. Sometimes they sneak up on you, huh? I didn't say anything. That's why I missed her last time. And this is 101. 101 West 85th Street. How varied are the faces in stone, the animals in stone, the other figures in stone here in New York City, from borough to borough, from neighborhood to neighborhood? But they're very si- more similar than we think. There are some rare ones, like in the Bronx on uh, Tremont and Webster Avenue, there's Asian women, and that was unusual. On uh, 72nd and, um, and Columbus, there are uh, uh, seals. So you'll find some rare things, but if you look at many of the faces of the women or the men, they're very similar. One of the interesting things I found photographing the Lower East Side, there's one face that comes up in many buildings, and these were built, I would think, from 1800 to 1900, and I think that's the cantor or the rabbi in the neighborhood because it was so common. But also I found him on 86th Street as well. So some faces were common, 
Whether it was a real person, whether it was a fictitious character, it's really hard to say. I believe it's a real person. I was going to ask you the question, how often were these faces modeled after real people? I think they were. Because of the, like the woman we saw that I think on 113, that face, that small little smile, and you wouldn't find, you'll find a similar face, but sometimes that face isn't seen anywhere else. I think that's a real person. Uh, modeled, and it could be the owner, the owner's, um, the owner's wife, the owner's daughter, maybe the architect or the designer, or even maybe the sculptor's daughter or wife. So I think it could be. So you just walk the streets, Robert, and you look up. You yeah. look for faces looking back at you, fair yes. to say? Sometimes I actually feel they call me, and I know that sounds odd. There was a movie called My Brother Talks to Horses, 1948, with uh, Peter Lawford. And where they actually, the horse actually talked to this child. And I know it sounds strange, but sometimes I feel there's a certain chemistry that, because that, I've done it so often. I was in Seattle, Washington with my friend, and we're walking down the street, and all of a sudden I said, Stop! And I looked to my right, and there was a seal. And she said, How did you know it was there? I said, Didn't you hear it? And she had walked that street and never noticed the seal, and that, a walrus, I'm sorry. And it just calls, because I think if you're perceptive to these, they kind of call out to you. And sometimes I feel they do. How frequently do you think people just walk by? We just saw two people walk past us right now. They paid no attention to the woman looking down at us at 121. If I had my camera up, they would be looking at the entire building and wondering, what am I photographing? And that's what most people wonder about. And some people think I'm spying on someone, but I'm just taking a picture. How many times do you get the question, what are you photographing? What are you looking at? Usually not that often because people walk by. They think I'm a tourist, which I, I don't mind because then they leave me alone. They think I'm a tourist and they just walk by and just, you know, maybe smile. Sometimes because of the size of my lens, they'll, they'll wonder, what, they'll ask me, am I a photographer or something like that? And I, I'll either say yes or no because I'm, I'm trying to really stay focused on the buildings. I understand that you have a special relationship with one woman in stone in particular. Who is she? Viola. She's on Murray Street. And I go down to see her, and she's, I think she's gorgeous. She's very friendly. My wife, I've introduced her to my wife, but she's really uh, quite pleasant. I think also she gives me a small smile when nobody else is looking, and then quickly changes. She's a little weathered, but she, she manages. How do you know her name is Viola? Because right over the door is her name Viola. One of the other interesting things I found that many buildings they have the name of the building, the Marianne, the Viola, whatever. And so the building now, for the occupants, had more of an identity. It's not just a simple box, a glass box with a door. It's a building that has a face, it has an identity, it has a name. And so I think it also brings a little pride to one living in the building, that your building now is a little more special than the building next door. So you snap the photo, you jot down the address of the building on which that figure appears. Yes, and then I take a photograph of the entire building. Now you're up to three books of these figures, animals, faces in stone. Yes, correct. I hope to do a fourth one showing of pictures of around the world of different cities that I've been to around the world. I have an exhibition now in City Island which shows many of my photographs. It's focused on the Bronx, details of the Bronx, but also on the other cities I've been to 
uh, in the United States and in Europe. So right now, all three of your books are New York City-centric. Correct, the New York City. And they show the building, the detail, and is a, um, um, the transportation on how to get there by bus or um, by su uh, subway, and also a map if one wishes to do a walking tour. What was first? Faces in Stone was the first book? Faces in Stone, then came a few years later, Animals in Stone, and now Figures in Stone, which is actually is a combination of the first two books. Do you have pretty much a zoo here in New York City when it comes to the animals in stone? Oh, tremendous. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing how much there is in New York City. And people don't see it. But it's really certain areas like the Upper West Side here, um, the Lower East Side. It's rich. I mean, extremely rich of the details. What was the oddest animal you encountered on a building in New York? Franklin Street and Broadway, where two snakes are biting the globe. That was the most interesting. And the person who did that, his grandson contacted me and gave me information on his uh, grandfather, who was the super of one of the companies that did stone cuttings in Red Hook, Brooklyn. How frequently are you doing research on the buildings to learn more about the figures, faces, animals that you capture? Maybe once a week I'll just spend a few hours just searching on the internet to see if I could find information. Most of the time I'm unsuccessful, but most of it's, it's, it's interesting just doing the research. Any piece of history you uncovered that particularly surprised you? I think one of the ones in, the, in Park Chester in the Bronx that was done during the WPA program in the 40s when, um, when they were built. Many of the details were put there. And the fountain in the center of Park Chester, that was one of the exhibitions at the World's Fair of, eight, of 1938 in um, Flushing. And that was brought to the center. And that was, I thought that was fascinating. Besides being a hobby, what is your motivation? Would you say you're trying to capture something in particular for the public that they don't see every day? What are you trying to capture for everyone else? People to appreciate the work that was done by unknown artists. How much has changed since you started this project in terms of the architecture? You know, New York City is the city that is pretty much never finished. Buildings come down all the time. Have you seen some of the faces, animals that you've captured demolished? Yes. There's one particular on York Avenue. I took a photograph. It was a, a, a sculpture of, a, of an explorer like Dakota. And I went back two years later and it was totally gone. And I. I actually couldn't believe that somebody would take it down. It, I mean, know the, the facade, the parapet needed repair, but to, to just totally rip it off, I thought that was in some ways criminal because it's public art. The woman on this building on 121 West uh, 85th Street, it's a work of art. It's public art for everybody to appreciate. And to take her away wouldn't be the right thing to do. Have you advocated on behalf of any particular building that you knew was slated to come down? Not any particular building. I'm trying to make, would like to get the public to be aware of all the buildings all the, and to appreciate them. And they need repair, but not to destroy them. They're part of American history and part of the history of this neighborhood, this street. This, she is a part of this street and don't take her away. And she's likely been a part of the street for a long, long time. She's, she may be over 100, and she looks not bad for 100. If you really look at her, I mean, this, her face is maintained very, relatively well, a little weathered. 
And those two animals on the side of her probably protect her also. Um, when I was in Madrid, there's a, um, there was a beautiful historic building. And what they did, they tore out the interior, maintained the facade, and going to fill in the new building respecting the facade. And uh, Paul Goldberg, in his, one of his books, he wrote about respecting the streetscape. And it's just giving honor to the street and not altering it or butchering the street. And I think that can be done in America. I think some buildings should not be torn down. Just re redo, bring it back to life. I was mentioning to a doctor friend of mine that what I'm doing is bringing back sometimes the dead. These buildings that have been abandoned but are gorgeous and you bring them back to life. And that's really great. And I'm respecting the streetscape. What can you tell us about the motivation as to why architects at the time were putting faces and animals and other things on buildings? It's ornamentation. It gives the building character. It's almost like makeup on the face of a building. And you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to take off your makeup. So it, and the, the ornamentation gives the building more character. And to strip the building of its character, then it's, just, it's too plain. Did it at all have anything to do with superstition, put a gargoyle on, keep the evil spirits away, that kind of thing? On churches, yes. Because at one time, in the, detail, the, the figures on churches, because many people at that time, I guess during the 16th and 15th century, they couldn't read. So these symbols meant what's evil, what's good, and bad. I think if one looks at uh, Gaudi's church in Barcelona, like you have all the, the evil ones looking down and the angels and the good ones looking up. And this is to, so people could relate to what's going on. And you know this is a place of worship. But so you didn't have to have a sign, this is a church. All you had to do was see the figures. Have you ever discovered a face that you captured here in New York in another city? Similar, similar. I think in Chicago, there were a few faces that I found in New York that are very similar to the ones. Also when I was in, um, I think it was Madrid, there were a few faces that are very similar to the ones. And um, I think these artisans, I don't think they necessarily had contact with one another, but it was the style that was done during that time. I understand that you have a dream to perhaps erect your own building and put your wife in stone is, on it. That is very true. I had an opportunity, the people didn't get the lot, but I was going to put that, put my wife's face on it, not tell anyone, and then 40, 50 years people would be guessing whose face is that and I think that would be like the mystery that I'm having now whose face is that somebody else would come along and wonder whose face is that what about your own face on a building Robert no no that's too hammy I would never I would never put my face on a building maybe somebody else may do it but I would never do that my face but I would do other people's faces how often do you go out to capture these figures animals faces I and stuff I think stone? once every week and a half has it been hard for you to distill your photographs to put in the books that you have? I would imagine you have more photos than the books would allow. Yes, right. It's hard for me to pick because some of them I'm closer to, like Viola. You know, when they pick a picture, I can't, you know, they have to include Viola. You know, she's my, one of my favorites. But certain pictures are my favorites. Some of them I've taken, and some of them I don't remember taking them, like the Asian women in um, on Webster and Tremont. There's another woman in, uh, uh, in Copenhagen that I have. And I'd walked down that street several times in Copenhagen, and one day I walked on the other side and I saw her. The, the man and the woman in, in Madrid, 
across from a construction site, and I had to convince the construction workers to stop work for a moment for me to take the picture. And they didn't speak English and I didn't speak Italian, but they got what I wanted to do, which was really very nice. What's amazing about your photographs is the fact that you take us up. You take us up several stories. Yes. It's almost as if we're staring at it head on, but it is way up there often. Well, this 500 zoom lens, and as long as I can go further back and the, the trees aren't restricting my photograph, it looks like I'm right there. There's one actually on a little north of Pine Street off Broadway, and the, it's a figure. He's on the 15th, 18th floor that I got him, and it was that was one of my, the hardest shots, that and the Manhattan Bridge, as I told you, those were the hard shots to do. Usually I need someone, sometimes someone with me to stop traffic. I was going to say, you I'm sure have to watch where you're going, you just can't shoot wherever you are, you have to be cognizant of your surroundings yes. in New York City. I try to be, but I, sometimes I get so excited, it's really hard for me to to resist running in the street and photographing as we did back there and waited for the traffic light. Yeah. All right, Robert, anything we didn't talk about that you would want to add about this hobby of yours? No, I think you've covered just about everything, and I love this hobby. And it's one of those hobbies that it's endless. It can never end. You can just go from city to city, but still so much more ground, as you said, here in New York City that you haven't covered. I have the entire planet. Robert, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Robert Arthur King is an architect. He has a passion for photographing often overlooked stone faces and figures on buildings in New York City and beyond. His three books are Faces in Stone, Animals in Stone, and Figures in Stone. You'll also find him on Facebook and Instagram. It's one thing to marvel at sculptures that adorn buildings. It's another thing to create them. Enter Chris Pelletieri. He's a stone carver right here in New York City. Chris got his start in stone carving nearly three decades ago in the Morningside Heights neighborhood of Manhattan. The beginning of the story of my life in stone carving was uh, when I was in seventh grade in a cathedral school, which is located at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. The fellow who was in charge of the cathedral at that time, Dean Morton, he started a, or he resumed construction on the cathedral because it had started back in 1890, but they'd taken long breaks and... In 1979, they'd been on a 30-year break. And he had trained initially as an architect before he became a priest. And he had enthusiasm and imagination and energy, and he decided there's no reason why we shouldn't continue construction or, or resume construction. So he started a program to, uh, to do that and found out that there were no people around anymore who knew how to do it. So he... Uh, he started a training program, an apprenticeship program, which imported some experts from Europe and recruited some young people from the neighborhood. And I was too young at that time, but I became aware of it. Much later, after being through high school and college and not discovering anything that I was really excited about, I remembered what I'd seen back in seventh grade, eighth grade, and I realized that it might be the right thing for me. And I went back. I was still living in the neighborhood. Uh, I went back to the cathedral and I asked for an opportunity to learn and they welcomed me and as soon as I started doing it I realized it was really uh, well suited to my skills and my energy. You had studied mathematics in college, right? I studied math but uh, not with like big passion for math. It was a situation where uh, I had decided that I wanted to go to college, I wanted to get a degree because I didn't know of any other paths, paths to adulthood or 
everybody I went to high school with went to college, and it was seemed to be the expectation. Does an education in math at all translate into stone carving? I would say, I get asked that question uh, a few times. So uh, none of the specific subject matter that I that I was trained in, uh, uh, trained in that I, part of my education, really is applicable. Except for in high school, we took mechanical drawing, which wasn't even a math course. It was representing objects, you know, on a flat piece of paper from multiple views, very precisely. But calculus, trigonometry. These subjects have, there was absolutely no uh, application of those things. But I do feel like somebody with the type of mind that embraces math and is not afraid of math, that's an asset for sure with stone carving, yeah. So you graduated college and you started to learn how to carve stone. What's involved in learning how to carve stone? I like to say there are three aspects to learning to carve stone. And when you get started, the basic level is competence with the tools and to be able to shape stone precisely if someone else is telling you exactly what they want you to shape. And not even beyond that, not only is somebody else telling you what to carve, they're telling you what steps to carve to bring it out. So you're just like the technician, the one who's actually using the tools to remove the stone according to someone else's pencil lines. The second level is when you have to actually figure out where to put the pencil lines. Somebody else has told you what you want to come out with as a finished product, but you have to not only control the tools to remove the excess stone, you also have to come up with the steps to arrive at that final stage. The third uh, level of competence is actually deciding what what the finished product is going to be. It's not the only way, but I think the best way is to uh, approach those in that order. That's interesting to me because I would think that the first step would be to decide what the final project will look like. I think that's because you've grown up like everyone else today in a world where an artist is thought of as somebody who is number one creative genius from, from the very beginning. Uh, we don't go to art class in school having the teacher say, Now, this is what I want you to do, and you just have to, here's the materials, and you just have to glue them on or assemble them, you know, in this way. It's more like, here's some clay, and you can get creative, be your, you know, which is, I admit, it's more fun from a beginner's point of view to to decide what you're going to do. But I think, uh, historically, that is not the way that the great stone carvers were trained, because there was sort of a workshop model where stone carving was a business and there were clients. In, in, in the old days, mo- mostly it was the church that was the client. And so from the very beginning, someone outside of the creative process had decided, well, we want the evangelists or we want a statue of the Virgin Mary. So right away, that whole opportunity to get super creative and determine the end product was taken away by somebody else. Maybe the master of the workshop would have the opportunity to decide the folds of the drapery or the the finer points of the body position, things like that. But the new people, the people at the bottom level who were actually had their hands on the hammers and chisels were, I don't think, being creative at all. What's the first thing that you ever carved out of stone? 
Well, um, when I started at the cathedral, the first level was stone masonry. Stone masonry is shaping volumes uh, in a geometric way for uh, construction. You have a lot of flat surfaces, a lot of precise angles. So the first thing I carved was a flat surface. The first thing I carved, they, they put a, a block of limestone on a wooden table we call the banker. And they just drew a pencil line around the out around the top uh, at the top and said, "Take the surface down to this level." So there was no creativity, there was no judgment, there was no opportunity to uh, put my own spin on things. It was just a technical exercise. I did it thinking, "Okay, now I'm ready for the next uh, challenge." But they said, "Oh no, just we'll put a new pencil line on and you do it again." And I continued to do that for a month until I had the skills to move on to a, a harder challenge. People think, well, that sounds pretty boring to do a flat surface. And from a certain point of view, it is boring. It offers you no opportunity to be creative, but uh, it's also very challenging to see how close you can come to being completely flat and how quickly and economically of, of uh, energy you can do it in, yeah. That said, what are the more creative things that you've carved out of stone over the years? I was, I was working in the stonemasonry uh, realm for about a year and a half. And then after they, they, they gave me opportunity to do uh, some decorative carving. And still it wasn't creative because it was uh, a decorative motif called a crocket, which is a stylized sort of leaf that projects out from, from the wall. Mainly I was trying to conform to the decorative style of the other decoration on the building. So I didn't design it myself. It was an attempt to conform and to make it look uniform to the other things. That was the extent that I got at the cathedral in, in terms of carving uh, training. I left shortly after that. And I had no real idea where I was going to connect with clients or people that would want to pay me to do the kind of work I had been doing at the cathedral. So I decided I needed to start to try to find some way of learning to do uh, faces, you know, figurative uh, art, um, as well as inscriptions and uh, fireplace mantles, which might include foliage and decoration of that nature. So I found some people who had knowledge of that, and they weren't really running a school or a training program, but I approached them, and, and they were uh, impressed with what I had done before because it was unique and they didn't meet many people that had gotten into the sculpture business as a stonemason. It's very unusual and it's today it's now that the cathedral is not training stonemasons anymore it's I don't think there's anywhere in New York City certainly where where people could have that kind of experience except in in my training program which is much smaller scale. So they offered me the opportunity to learn from them what they knew which was partly modeling in clay, figures, faces, foliage, things like that, whatever sculpture a client might be interested in having done. And then to use a traditional, and when I say it's a modern method of carving stone, but even as a modern method, it's a few hundred years old. So Chris, what is it about stone carving that motivates you the most? I think probably the combination of the the challenge that there are so many things out there that are beyond my reach that inspire me to to go further that are 
challenges that I hope to grapple with someday, that, that excites me to, to be able to continue to challenge myself rather than repeating the same process again and again. Also, I like the idea that I'm part of a tradition that goes back so far and that basically I'm doing something in a similar way that people have been doing in my grandfather's time, my great-grandfather's time, back to the cathedral builders in Europe in the 1100s or the pyramid builders in thousands of years before that. I think that I don't think about it all the time while I'm working, but when I reflect on it, it makes me feel good, and I enjoy being part of something that goes back so far as opposed to something brand new that people haven't done before this year, and they'll probably be tired of doing and stop doing within a year. So that's fun for me. Is it a stress release? Can you take out all of your frustration on a piece of stone? Well, when there's big waste to be gotten rid of and you're just swinging the hammer and breaking off big pieces yeah you can you can really get a good workout and and it's not just a brainless thing you're you're using your knowledge to for economy of effort you know you're you're breaking the pieces with the least effort and that takes a lot of practice and and that it can transport you to another uh realm where you're not really so much thinking about what time it is or what else you have to do that day. So I love when I get into that kind of rhythm and, and uh, my head gets into that space. That's a really, really good payoff of stone carving. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Sure, you're welcome. Thanks for visiting. Chris Pelletieri is a stone carver in New York City. He's online at stonecarving.us. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. And thank you for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.